0: Also dear Free Speech And let me just say that I'm... I'm awed and, and humbled to be giving the Ralph Dierendorf Memorial Lecture. I have the greatest admiration for his work. I'm just terribly sorry that I never knew him personally. And as I was saying to the family, I've been watching YouTube videos and getting acquainted with this very generous spirit, and I'm just very sorry that I never had a chance to talk about these things with him. So these will be some ideas related to the ideas in the book, and I'm going to focus on the burqa, but get to the inner eyes at the end. Once, very, not very long ago, Americans and Europeans prided themselves on their enlightened attitudes of religious toleration and understanding. Although everyone knew that the history of the West has been characterized by intense religious animosity and violence, including such bloody episodes as the Crusades and the wars of religion, but including as well the quieter violence of colonial religious domination by Europeans in many parts of the world, and added to that of domestic anti-Semitism, and often anti-Catholicism, and culminating in the horrors of Nazism. Europe and the US, until very recently, like to think that these dark times were in the past, and that religious violence was somewhere else, in societies allegedly more primitive, less characterized by a heritage of Judeo-Christian values. Today, we have many reasons to doubt this complacent self-assessment. Our situation calls urgently for searching critical self-examination as we try to uncover the roots of ugly fears and suspicions that currently disfigure all Western societies. In April 2011, a law took effect in France, according to which it is illegal to cover the face in any public space, from parks to marketplaces to shops. Although the law does not mention the words women, Muslim, burqa, or even veil, it was introduced by President Sarkozy as a ban on the Muslim burqa, which, according to him, imprisons women and threatens French values of dignity and equality. Although France is the first country to enact a full ban on the Borca in public space, similar restrictions are being considered all over Europe. Meanwhile, many communities in Europe have even imposed regulations on the headscarf. In France, girls may not wear the headscarf in schools. Kosovo, with its large Muslim population, has imposed a similar ban. In parts of Germany, Holland, Spain, and Belgium, the headscarf may not be worn by public employees, including teachers on the job, even though nuns and priests are permitted to teach in full habit. In Switzerland, after a campaign designed to appeal to peers of a Muslim takeover, a popular referendum supported by 57% of those who voted banned the construction of minarets associated with mosques, despite the fact that actually only four mosques out of the 150 in Switzerland actually had minarets. And so the issue was clearly emotional and symbolic. Even in small and sometimes bizarre ways, the fear of Muslims shows its ugly face. The mayor of the Italian city of Capiate in Bergamo banned kebab shops in his city in 2009. A white supremacist website has made much of this so-called victory, exalting and trying to stir up disgust by describing allegedly filthy and roach-ridden conditions in those restaurants conditions that are pretty common the world over, as I know from our own campus, favorite campus hangout was just closed down by the health department. For <laughs> similar conditions. As the year went on, quite a few more towns in the regions of Genoa and Bergamo joined the ban. In lookup, a kebab shop was firebombed, and an MP from the anti-immigration northern league called for a ban on all foreign foods. <laughs> in July 2011, Terror struck northern Europe. Norwegian zealot Anders Bering and murdered approximately 76 people in twin attacks, bombing government buildings in Oslo, and shooting young representatives of the Norwegian Labour Party who had gathered on the island of Utoja for a youth camp. Breivik, who confessed to the crimes but denied fault, released on the day of the attacks a 1,500-page manifesto in which he outlined a theory supporting his actions based on the idea that Europe must fight against the scourge of Islamicization and, uh, in effect, conduct a new crusade. In the US, no bans on the burqa or headscarf are proposed to my knowledge, but in private employment there have been many difficulties. For example, Imane Boulaou, a female Disneyland employee from Morocco, is suing Disney For the right to wear her headscarf during her job as a hostess in Disneyland's Grand Californian Hotel. Her supervisors told her it was not the Disney look, and that if she wanted to continue to wear it, she would have to take a job out of sight of customers. Another issue giving rise to controversy in the U.S. is the potential application of sharia to U.S. citizens. In Oklahoma, an amendment to the state constitution, which passed with 70% of the vote, provides that Oklahoma courts may draw on U.S. federal law, the common law, and, quote, if necessary, the laws of another state, meaning U.S. state, but may not, quote, look to the legal precepts of other nations or cultures, international law, or Sharia law. The law's primary architect, Rex Duncan, said this is a war for the survival of America, This ill-drafted and vague amendment, which was called the Save Our State Amendment, raises a host of problems, including the fact that the common law is of English origin and the fact that the sweeping indictment of international law might be considered to apply to such recognized sources of law as maritime law and treaties. But the most obvious issue is that the law singles out Islam for special stigmatization, and the suit that was brought on this ground was found by a federal district judge to have merit. She halted the law's implementation for a further hearing, and later extended her restraining order indefinitely. The judge noted that the law would place a special burden on Muslims, since courts would still be permitted to enforce contracts such as wills and marriage contracts that incorporate language drawn from the faith traditions of other religions. As my own colleague, University of Chicago law professor Aziz Hook wrote in the New York Times, quote, the bans would deprive Muslims of equal access to the law. A butcher would no longer be able to enforce his contract for halal meat. Contracts that like deals for kosher or other faith-sanctioned foods are regularly enforced around the country, nor could a Muslim banker seek damages for violations of a financial instrument certified as Sharia compliant because it pays no interest. This Oklahoma controversy gave rise to a wave of anti-Muslim sentiment across the nation and prompted other states to draft similar measures with an attempt to find language that avoided the constitutional problems of the Oklahoma law. Perhaps most bizarre is a proposed law in the state of Tennessee that would make following Sharia a felony punishable by up to 15 years in jail. As since Sharia, like traditional Jewish law, covers a wide range of personal conduct, including abstention from alcohol, dietary guidelines, rules for prayer, and a code of honesty in business dealings, it's ridiculous as written. But the very fact that it could be seriously entertained is evidence of a high level of public ignorance and suspicion. When such objections were mentioned to the lawmaker who drafted the bill, He replied, I'm still researching it. Okay, so what does political philosophy have to say about all these developments? As it turns out, a long philosophical and legal tradition, both in in Britain and in, in America, has reflected about similar matters. So let's start with an assumption that's widely shared, at any rate I think universally shared today, that all human beings are equal bearers of human dignity. So it's widely agreed that government must treat that dignity with equal respect. But what is it to treat people with equal respect in areas touching on religious belief and observance? We now add a further premise that the faculty with which people search for life's ultimate meaning, frequently called conscience in the tradition because it was in origin a Protestant tradition, but I think that concept of conscience has by now been, been greatly broadened is a very important part of people closely related to their human dignity. And we add one further premise, which we might call the vulnerability premise. This faculty of conscience can be seriously impeded by bad worldly conditions. It can be stopped from becoming active, and it can even be violated or damaged within. The first sort of damage which 17th century American philosopher Roger Williams compared to imprisonment, he, he said, so many millions of consciences are imprisoned all over the world, it happens when people are prevented from outward observances required by their religious beliefs. The second sort, which Williams very vividly called soul rape, occurs when people are forced to affirm convictions that they may not hold or give assent to orthodoxies they don't really support. The vulnerability premise this shows us that giving equal respect to conscience requires tailoring worldly conditions so as to protect both freedom of belief and freedom of expression or practice. It suggests that freedom should be quite ample. If we combine it with the equality premise, we get the principle that religious liberty should be both ample and equal. A principle very like, and indeed uh, inspired ultimately John Rawls's principle that justice requires the quote, maximum liberty, that is compatible with a like liberty for all. Thus, the framers of the US Constitution concluded that protecting the equal rights of conscience, a phrase they very often used in debates, requires free exercise for all on a basis of equality. The state constitutions of that time made it clear that the commitment was to ample liberty, not just equal liberty because they permitted only a few very extremely urgent public considerations, <laughs> such as peace and safety, to trump the religious claim. But what do these abstract principles really mean? What is truly equal liberty in religious matters? And what limits might reasonably be placed upon religious activities in a pluralistic society compatibly with that commitment? The philosophical architects of the Anglo-American legal tradition could easily see that when peace and safety are at stake, or, very importantly, the equal rights of others, some reasonable limits might be imposed on what people do in the name of religion, and that such restrictions supported by urgent public interests might still be compatible with the respect for equal liberty. But they grasped after a deeper and more principled rationale for these limits and protections. Here, the philosophical tradition splits. One strand, associated with English philosopher John Locke, holds that protecting truly equal liberty of conscience requires only two things, laws that do not penalize religious belief and laws that are non-discriminatory or non-persecutory about practices, applying the same laws to everyone in matters touching on religious activities. An example of a discriminatory law, said Locke, would be a law that made it illegal to speak Latin in the church, but allowed it to remain legal to speak Latin in churches and I mean, in um, schools and universities. Now, obviously, the point of such a law, he said, would be to persecute Roman Catholics. Another example he gives is that it would be illness under his principle to have a law that made it illegal to immerse yourself in water for the sake of baptism, but allowed it to remain legal to immerse yourself in water for the sake of health or recreation. Again, that law was obviously a way of persecuting Baptists. But if a law is not persecutory in this way, says Locke, it may stand, even though it may incidentally impose burdens on some religious activities more than on others. So if people find that their conscience will not permit them to obey a certain law, let's say regarding military service or work days or whatever, They better follow their conscience, says Locke, because eternal salvation is at stake, but they will have to pay the legal penalty. A modern Lockean case, decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1993 with explicit reference to Locke, concerned an ordinance passed by the city of Hialeah, Florida, which made, quote, ritual animal sacrifice, end quote, illegal, but permitted all the usual ways of killing animals for food. The court, when it invalidated the law, reasoned that it was a deliberate form of persecution directed at Santeria worshippers, who, whose religion requires ritual sacrifice. Another tradition associated with Roger Williams, who was uh, born in, in England, but he moved uh, to, to the colonies, and he was the founder of the colony of Rhode Island and copious writer about religious freedom, holds the protection for conscience must be even stronger than this. This tradition reasons that laws in a democracy are always made by majorities and will naturally embody majority ideas of convenience. Even if such laws are not persecutory in intent, they may turn out to be very unfair to religious minorities. In the cases in which such laws burden liberty of conscience, for example, by requiring people to testify in court on their holy day, or to perform military service that their religion forbids, or to violate the seal of the confessional and court testimony, or to abstain from the use of a drug required by their sacred ceremony, this tradition holds that a special exemption called in the law an accommodation should be given to the minority believer. On the whole, the accommodationist position has been dominant in US law and public culture ever since first President George Washington wrote a famous letter to the Quakers explaining that he would not require them to serve in the military because, quote, the conscientious scruples of all men deserve the utmost delicacy and tenderness. end quote. For a long time, and really until 1990, modern constitutional law in the US applied an accommodationist standard, holding the government may not impose what was called a substantial burden on a person's free exercise of religion without what was called a compelling state interest, of which peace and safety were obvious examples, but not the only ones. The landmark case articulating this principle concerned a woman who was a Seventh-day Adventist and whose workplace, a textile mill in South Carolina, introduced a sixth workday, (coughs) and of course, they chose Saturday as the extra day. Fired because she refused to work on that day, she sought unemployment compensation from the state of South Carolina, And was denied on the grounds that she had refused suitable work. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled in her favor, arguing that the denial of benefits was like fining Mrs. Sherbrooke for her non-standard religious practices. It was thus a denial of her equal freedom to worship in her own way. They said there's nothing wrong in principle with choosing Sunday as the general day of rest, but there is something wrong with not restoring the terrain of equality by accommodating Mrs. Sherbert's religious needs. I believe that the accommodationist principle is more adequate than Locke's principle because it reaches subtle forms of discrimination that are ubiquitous in majoritarian democratic life. All societies make choices involving holidays, work days, drug and alcohol restrictions, and a host of other matters touching on people's religious observances. The choices of a majority are usually supported by some type of reasoning. Thus, they will pass a weaker, what's called rational basis test. They may, however, be extremely harsh to minorities, rendering (coughs) their liberty unequal. To grant the minorities accommodations on grounds of conscience in areas ranging from employment to military conscription to sacramental drug use is to restore a standard of equal liberty. Accommodation has its problems, however, one, which was emphasized by Justice Scalia when he turned our constitutional standard back to the Lockean standard in 1990 in a case that involved the sacramental use of peyote, which was then illegal, is that a system based on individualized exemptions is very difficult for courts and judges to administer. Creating exemptions to general laws on a case-by-case basis struck Scalia, not implausibly, as too chaotic and beyond the competence of the judiciary. Thus, though he thought that accommodations created by legislation would be permissible, such as the subsequent change in our Controlled Substances Act that legalized the sacramental use of peyote, he was opposed to granting such exemptions from the judge's bench. Another problem faced by the accommodationist position is that it has typically, in the US, favored religion and disfavored other reasons people may have for seeking an exemption to general laws, family reasons, cultural reasons, reasons having to do with personal commitments to art, or even to a secular ethical creed. To some extent, it's possible to deal with these other commitments in other areas of law, through a capacious free speech principle, for example, and through laws, if we had them, protecting family leave. But not all problems can be handled in this way. And some scholars, including, for example, Chris Eisgruber, the new president of Princeton University, think this is a sufficient reason to deny accommodations for everyone, thus reverting to the Lockean position. If the system of accommodations can't be made fair for all, it just shouldn't exist. They thus revert to a position that is both less ample, and I would say less equal in regard to religious liberty, but on grounds that are not without their merit. So the Roger Williams position has not yet shown that it can defeat the Lockean position. This is a thorny issue that requires ongoing discussion, But we don't need to resolve it today because the recent European cases all involve discriminatory laws that fail to pass even the weaker Lockean test, although in the special case of French secularism this will take some time to show. So I'm now going to focus on the ban of the Vorka. Arguments made there can be adapted to other cases. And then later I'll turn to the special case of the French law in the context of French secularism. What I'm now going to argue is that the five most prominent arguments in favor of banning the Borka are made inconsistently in ways that tacitly favor majority practices and burden minority practices. So they're really very much like Locke's Latin and water examples. They're thus not compatible with the principle of equal liberty, and thus in turn not compatible with the idea of equal respect for functions from which the principle springs. Indeed, we might also say that all are cases of seeing the moat in your brother's eye while failing to appreciate the large plank that's in your own eye, for all target situations alleged to be present in Muslim communities while failing to note their ubiquity in the majority culture. So let's look at each argument in turn. First is an argument from security. It holds that security (coughs) requires people to show their face when appearing in public space. A second closely related argument, which I'll treat to some extent together with it, says that the kind of transparency and reciprocity proper to relations between citizens is impeded by covering part of the face. What's wrong with both of these arguments is that they are applied inconsistently. It gets very cold in Chicago, and we walk along the streets, hats pulled down over ears and brows, scarves wound tightly over noses and mouths, no problem of either transparency or security is normally thought to exist, nor are we forbidden to enter public buildings, so insulated. Moreover, many beloved and trusted professionals cover their faces all year round. Surgeons, dentists, American football players, skiers, and skaters. The latter, the skaters, so often wear a full face covering with only slits for the eyes, so even more covered, I would say, than the burqa. Some are even more covered than the typical Borka wearer. My endodontist, endodontist, the guy who performs that grand procedure known as the root canal, needing an extremely precise view of a very small space, wears not only the face mask that all dentists wear, but then, in addition, a form of headgear that covers the eyes totally with a type of magnifying lens that magnifies from his point of view, but from mine makes it totally impossible for me to see his eyes. And, of course, uh, he's all the more trusted because he has that. It's bad enough having Rukunov without having one administered by somebody you can't properly see. (laughs) So, in general, then, what inspires fear and mistrust in Europe and in the U.S. to some degree is not facial covering per se. It's Muslim female face covering. But, it will be said, we're living in an era of terrorism. And in war against terror, it's legitimate to suspect women wearing the burka. This is a widespread view in the US, and I think probably in Europe as well. Uh, and of course, remember, we're talking about women wearing burka in these countries, not in countries where there might be a Muslim majority. All I can say is that if I were a terrorist in the US or Europe, and if I were not stupid, the last thing I would wear would be a burka. So it's that way of <laughs> pressing <to> attracts suspicious <laughs> attention. Criminals usually want not to attract suspicious attention, but if they are at all intelligent, they succeed. And of course, the guys in, in Boston, even though they're not particularly intelligent criminals, they, they did dress in kind of unremarkable clothing, baseball cap, t-shirt, and so on. And so I, if I were a woman a terrorist, I think I'd dress like Martha Nussbaum in the winter: long <laughs> <It's all good. laughs> bowered down coat, hat down over the eyebrows, extra hood over the hat for insulation, large sunglasses, and a bulky Indian shawl around the nose and mouth. Nonetheless, I've never been asked to remove these clothes in a department store, a public building, or even a bank. In the summer, again, if I were an intelligent kind of terrorist. I would wear a big floppy hat and a long loose caftan, and I'd carry a capacious Louis Vuitton handbag, the sort that signals conspicuous consumption. <laughs> That's what a smart terrorist would do, and I think the smart ones are ones that we certainly should especially worry about. So what to do about the threat that all bulky and non-revealing clothing constitutes? Airline security does a lot with metal detectors, body imaging, pat downs, etc. One very effective, I think, system is at work in India, where all passengers get a full manual pat-down, but in a curtain booth by a member of the same sex, who is trained to be courteous and respectful, which is certainly not the case in the U.S. Private stores or other organizations who feel that bulky clothing is a threat, whether of shoplifting or terrorism or both, could institute a non-discriminatory rule, for example, banning floor-length coats, to check them at the door, for example. Or they could even have a body scanner at the door. But they don't, presumably preferring customer-friendliness to the extra <coughs> margin of safety. What I want to establish, however, is the invidious discrimination inherent in the belief that the burqa poses a unique security risk. Reasonable security policies applied to similar cases similarly are perfectly fine. (coughs) A reasonable demand would be that a Muslim woman have a full-face photo on her driver's license and passport. With suitable protections for modesty during the photographic session, such a photo could be required. And I don't think this requirement would be incompatible with equal liberty. Uh, In fact, in Florida, that's what the judges recently said. Moreover, I've been informed by my correspondence that most contemporary Islamic scholars agree a woman can and must remove her become for visual identification if so requested. However, we also know by now that the face is a very bad identifier. At immigration checkpoints, eye recognition and fingerprinting technologies have already replaced the photo. When these superior technologies spread to police on patrol and airport security lines, we can do away with the photo, hence with what remains of the first argument. Sometimes. People argue that, well, even if a burqa ban would be both over-inclusive, banning dress by harmless, worn by harmless, peaceful women, and underinclusive, failing to ban many forms of attire that terrorists might choose, still, it's a good proxy for what is truly dangerous. And this sort of profiling is perfectly legitimate. We can certainly debate the empirics here, and we should, but within reasonable limits, we do think that airports are entitled to use profiling, in determining whom to search. This, however, is not what we're contemplating. We're not contemplating extra searches, but rather an outright ban on clothing that some people think religiously required. In the context of such a severe burden, the fact that the proposed ban is under and over-inclusive for security purposes is highly relevant. Let's consider a relevant parallel, Chicago's short-lived gang congregation ordinance, which prohibited, quote, criminal street gang members, end quote, from loitering in public places. Under this law, if a police officer reasonably believes that a person loitering in a public place, and loitering is defined as being there, quote, without apparent purpose, (laughs) is a gang member, he can order both that person and other people with whom that person is hanging around to disperse. Anyone who doesn't promptly obey has violated the ordinance and can be jailed and fined. Suppose, for example, that blue and black are the colors associated with a particular gang. That was the case with Jesus Morales, who was the plaintiff in this case. Well then, if a teenage boy wearing blue and black is hanging out with a group of his friends, all are subject to the ordinance and may end up being both jailed and fined. The U.S. Supreme Court declared the law unconstitutional on due process grounds, saying that it was both impermissibly vague and an arbitrary restriction on personal liberty. The ordinance, they said, was both under- and over-inclusive, and really very similar to what I said about the I've covenant. It burdened a huge amount of harmless conduct, that is, wearing blue and black, and it failed to target a lot of harmful conduct such as gang activity by people smart enough to circumnavigate the ordinance by not wearing the gang colors. Like the workup band, again, it led to objectionable ethnic profiling. If Martha Nussbaum wore a blue suit and black shoes, as I'm doing, no officer would, of course, look twice. It's not what it's about. Only young men would be targeted, and for the most part, only African-American or Latino men. The workup band does a little bit better on the vagueness criterion, it's pretty clear what's legal and what's illegal, but on the account of arbitrary restriction of personal liberty, it does no good. Indeed, it very likely does worse, since there was, and unfortunately still is, strong evidence of a correlation between gangs hanging around in a place and a crime in that place. I mean, it's a very, very serious problem, and the correlation is real. But the proposed Borca Band is not supported by any similar correlation between the presence of Muslim women wearing burqas in a public place and crime in that place. Once we add that the liberty in question is religious liberty, which usually gets more stringent protection than mere personal taste in clothing, the case against the burqa ban looks easier to make than the case against Chicago's law. But we still need to say a little something more about the variant of the argument, what I call my second argument, that focuses on the transparency that's proper to relations among citizens. I've already begun to reply by pointing to the many contexts in civic life in which we do encounter our fellow citizens while the face is to some extent covered. But we can now add some further points. The first is long long-standing traditions in many cultures hold that the eyes are the windows of the soul. Therefore, the contact with another person as individual to individual is made more through the eyes than through the nose or the mouth. Once during a construction project in my office that involved quite a lot of dust, I had to cover everything except my eyes while talking to students in office hours for several months. And at first, they did find it quite weird. But actually, you know, very quickly, they were asking me how they can get a similar cupboard. And uh, so my personality did not feel stifled, nor did they feel that they could not access my individuality. And even when eye contact is not possible, As with people who are blind, we have discovered, fortunately, that human contact is actually possible through the voice. We no longer exclude people who are blind from serving (coughs) as judges, lawyers, jurors, all occupations involving public reciprocity and public trust. The further point that I would make here is that people often have difficulty talking to people who look odd. And there's an unfortunate human tendency to blame this difficulty on the person who looks odd rather than on oneself. People with facial deformities are hugely stigmatized in most cultures. People with the multiple types of disability are often excluded from conversation. Indeed, children with disabilities used to be hidden away from so-called normal children in a separate room and not mainstreamed in the classroom partly with the so-called argument that normal children would find it difficult to interact with them. And in fact, in Chicago, for quite a longish time, people with a long list of disabilities, these were called ugly laws in the vernacular, were not allowed to appear in public space. So it was exactly the analog of the organ. And the argument was they make other people upset. And a very brilliant colleague of mine, a law professor who's a, a great constitutional law expert, uh, who has a, a neurological disability that causes his limbs to make uh, a lot of movements. He, uh, he's researched this and he finds that he would not have been able to appear in public space in that day. Well, today, an instructor in a university classroom knows that she can't exclude a person with major disabilities, such as blindness or Tourette Syndrome, because those are accepted categories for toleration <coughs> and inclusion. So, if she finds it difficult to talk to such a person, she will blame it not on that person but on herself, and she will try to do her job better. I think talking to someone wearing a borka is about as difficult for the unhabituated as talking to someone who's blind, and less difficult than talking to someone who has Tourette's syndrome. All too often, however, the difficulty is still blamed on the woman wearing the borka rather than on the oneself. A third argument, and very prominent today, is that the Borca is a symbol of male domination that symbolizes the objectification of women. It encourages people to think of and treat a woman as a mere object, not as a person. A Catalonian legislator recently called the Borca a degrading prison. President Sarkozy said very much the same thing. The first thing we should say about this argument is that the people who make it typically don't know very much about Islam, and would have a hard time saying what symbolizes what in that religion. But the more glaring flaw in the argument is that modern societies are suffused with symbols of male supremacy that treat women as sex objects. And indeed, as a feminist who wrote some 15 years ago about the concept of objectification, you know, what we were talking about was sex magazines, violent pornography, but even uh, more moderate things such as uh, transparent or revealing clothing, and the idea was that all these products, arguably, treat women as objects or commodities, as do so many aspects of media culture. Women are encouraged to market themselves for male objectification in this way, and it's long been argued by feminists that this is a way of robbing women of both agency and individuality. And ever since Gloria Steinem snuck into the Playboy Club and got the job as a bunny, and then she showed what well, you, you have to market yourself as indistinguishable from other sex objects in order to have that job. So anyway, that was the argument that was, was being given, and uh, it's still being made. And what about the degrading prison of plastic surgery? Every time I undress in the locker room of my gym, I see women bearing the scars of liposuction, tummy tucks, breast implants, isn't at least a lot of this done in order to conform to a male norm of female beauty that casts all women as sex objects? If the proposal were to ban all practices concerning which experts in feminism had concluded that they objectify women, the proposal would at least be consistent. Although very few, and I think no feminist that I know of, would endorse such a sweeping restriction of personal liberty or the authority it would vest in a small number of feminist experts But it's not made consistently. Proponents of the Borca ban do not propose to ban all these objectifying practices. Indeed, they often participate in them. Once again then, the opponents of the Borca are inconsistent, portraying the fear of the different that is discriminatory and unworthy of a liberal democracy. In effect, they're arrogating to themselves the position of the Ministry of Feminist Experts, but only for certain people. People whose real motives and understandings they're particularly likely not to understand clearly. The way to deal with sexism, in this case as in all, well, I would say, is by persuasion and example, not by ruling for liberty. Of course, things that are legal can still be disapproved of. What I'm arguing is that equal respect for persons requires equal conditions of liberty. It does not require equal personal approval of every religious practice. Many things are legal that most of us would consider deplorable. Unkindness, stinginess, intemperance, incivility, and so on. And in a society based upon equal respect for person, people with one religious or secular view remain perfectly free to disapprove of some religious practices or even of all of them and of religion itself. Respect is for the person and is fully compatible with intensely disliking many things that many people do. So, in a society dedicated to equal liberty, people should remain perfectly free to think and to say that the burqa is an objectionable garment because of the way in which it symbolizes the objectification of women. Still, I think such a person should at least think about consistency, and I think a duty of civility suggests that she ought at least to try hard to understand. One should listen to what women who wear the burqa say they think it means before opining. And in general, and I think this is particularly a problem in America, that people should hesitate for offering their view of the intimate aspects of strangers' lives. In, in America, you are always told things about your clothes, your pregnancy, your children, and so by people who don't know you at all. A fourth argument holds that women wear the burqa only because they are coerced. This is a rather implausible argument to make across the board, and it is typically made by people who have no idea of what the circumstances of this or that individual woman are, we should reply that, of course, all forms of violence and physical coercion in the home are illegal already. And laws against domestic violence should be enforced much more zealously than they are. Do the arguers really believe that domestic violence is a peculiarly Muslim problem? If they do, they are incorrect. According to the U.S. Bureau of Justice Statistics, intimate partner violence made up 20% of all non-fatal violent crime experienced by women in the year of the survey. The National Violence Against Women survey, cited on that same website, reports that 52% of surveyed women said they would have been physically assaulted as a child by an adult caretaker and or as an adult by some type of perpetrator. There's no specific evidence about Muslim families, that the numbers weren't enough, and so we don't know whether they might have a disproportionate amount of such violence. But given the strong association which we do know about between domestic violence and the abuse of alcohol, it seems at least possible that observant Muslim families might turn out to have less of it. But suppose there were evidence that the Burkaban was strongly associated statistically that the burqa, rather, wearing the burqa, was strongly associated statistically with violence against women. Could government legitimately ban it on those grounds? The US Supreme Court, in a funny case, did hold that new dancing, which was banned by the state of Indiana, may uh, continue to be banned on account of its contingent associated with crime, including crimes against women. But it's not clear that this holding was correct. I mean, it's a very odd case because the controlling opinion was written by just one justice, Justice Souter, and he was the one who said that there is this contingent connection between new dancing and crime, but he offered no supportive evidence at all. <laughs> and uh, in fact, the, the whole thing was the question: should the dancers be made to put on pasties and the g-string? So what he was, in effect, saying is that the difference between total nudity and pasties on a G-string made a big difference in the, contention, the connection to crime, which was, you know, pretty plausible, and uh, Justice Cedar was the least likely person to have known about <laughs> 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 that. College fraternities, however, we do know, are strongly associated with violence against women. And some universities have made all or some fraternities move off campus as a result. But private institutions are entitled to make such regulations about what could occur on their premises. Public universities are entitled to limit the type of activities that will get public money, particularly when they involve uh, underage drinking, which most college drinking is, is in America since our drinking age is 21. But a total governmental ban on the male drinking club or other places where men get drunk, such as uh, football matches, would certainly be a bizarre restriction of association liberty. What's most important, however, is that anyone proposing to ban the Borca on such grounds must consider it together with these other cases, weigh the evidence, and take the consequences for their own cherished hobbies. But what about children and adolescents? Surely they do not have much choice as long as they're living with their parents, so family pressure to wear a religious dress is likely to be difficult to resist. This question opens up a huge topic since there's nothing that's more common in the modern family than various forms of coercive pressure to get into a top college, to date people of the right religion or ethnicity, to wear appropriate clothes, to choose a remunerative career, to take a shower, and so on and so on. <laughs> So where should government and law step in? Certainly, it should step in where physical or sexual abuse is going on, which is very often. Where religious mandates are concerned, intervention would be justified similarly, where the behavior either constitutes a gross risk to bodily health and safety, as with Jehovah's Witnesses who refuse life-saving blood transfusions for their children, or impairs some major functioning. So I think that female genital mutilation practiced on minors should be illegal if it's a form that impairs sexual pleasure or other bodily functions. A symbolic prick would be a different story. The Christian science belief that children should not be taken to the doctor when they're sick has also been litigated successfully, and some forms of alternative medical therapy have led to abuse and neglect convictions. In every case, what's really going on is my two-sided balancing test. Is there a substantial burden on the parent's religious freedom? And if so, does a compelling state interest justify the imposition of this burden? So now to the workout. The workout for minors is not in the same class as genital mutilation, since it's not irreversible and does not endanger health or impair other bodily functions, not nearly so much as high-heeled shoes risk doing. If it's imposed by physical or sexual violence, that violence should be legally punished. Otherwise, however, it seems to be in the same category as all sorts of requirements, pleasant and unpleasant, that parents impose on their children. Some practices of this type do seem to me to violate laws against child cruelty. Thus, when Yale law professor Amy Chua, in a popular book called The Tiger Mother, they have heard of it here, admitted that she had forced her daughter to stand outside in the cold without supper, and on another occasion forced her to stay at the piano without bathroom access or dinner, because she had not mastered a difficult passage in the piano work, one did wonder, why the police were not on her doorstep. That sounds, well, of course, you knew the answer because she was a rich male law professor. But that sounds like child abuse, I If similar coercive tactics were used to get a child to wear a workup, then the case would be open to intervention. But most cases are not like this, and they're like emotional blackmail of an all too familiar, indeed ubiquitous. I'll just give you one from my experience. My father, who was from the deep south, told me when I was fourteen that if I appeared in public in a group, any one member of which was African American, he would disinherit me and refuse to pay for my college education. Well, I mean I think that was really bad. It was definitely morally objectionable. Should the law have intervened removing custody on that account. I, I actually think that probably not. Uh, because, after all, the most important thing is exit options from a situation like this. And so, end, you know, what happened was that I got that education, and I moved out and met all the wrong people and so forth. <laughs> uh, so I think to uh, bring in the police on all such occasions would count as too much legal intervention in the family. Societies are certainly entitled to insist that all female children have a decent education and employment opportunities they give them exit options from any home situation they may think bad. If people think women only wear the workout because of coercive pressure, let them create ample options for them and then see what they actually do. Before we leave the topic of coercion, there's a reasonable point to be made in this connection. When Turkey banned the veil long ago, there was good, a good reason in that specific context because women who went unveiled were being subjected to harassment and violence. The ban protected a space for the choice to be unveiled and was legitimate so long as women did not have that choice. So we might think of this as a substantial burden justified temporarily by a compelling state of interest. The ban does not appear to me to be justified today when women are able to circulate freely unveiled, nor, and this is more important for my argument here, would it be justified in today's Europe or the U.S., where women can dress as they please, and so there's no reason for belonging to religious liberty that the ban involves. Finally, and fifth, one often hears the argument that the burqa is per se unhealthy, because it's hot and uncomfortable. Now, I've heard this argument very often in Europe, and for some reason particularly in Spain, I think it's perhaps the weakest of the arguments. Clothing that covers the whole body can be either comfortable or uncomfortable, healthy or unhealthy, depending on the fabric. As people in India know, and when I go to India, this is what I would do, full body covering made of cotton or silk is a very good choice in the heat because it's supremely comfortable, breathes well, and full body covering keeps dust off one's limbs and at least diminishes the risk of skin cancer. very uh, important issue which uh, none of us thought enough about in our younger days, it's surely far from clear that the amount of skin displayed in typical Spanish female dress would meet with the dermatologist's approval. (laughs) But more pointedly, would the arguer really seek to ban all unhealthy and possibly uh, uncomfortable (coughs) female clothing? Wouldn't we have to begin with high heels and platform shoes, delicious as they are, I love them, uh, but no, my heels are associated with majority norms, so they draw no ire. In general, the state, and I think rightly, limits its regulatory interventions into clothing to making sure the clothing sold to children is flame-proof and without harmful chemicals, and that other gross health risks are avoided. But on the whole, living in particular are allowed and even encouraged to wear clothing that could plausibly be argued to create health risks, whether through tendon shortening or exposure to the sun. All five arguments are discriminatory. We don't even need to reach the de- delicate issue of Roger Williams-ish accommodation to see that they're unacceptable in a society committed to equal liberty. Equal respect for conscience requires us to reject them. But let's now consider more closely the special case of France. Unlike other European nations, France is consistent up to a point. Given its history of anti-clericalism and the strong commitment to laicite, religion is not to set its mark upon the public realm, and the public realm is permitted to disfavor religion by contrast to non-religion. This commitment leads to restrictions on a wide range of religious manifestations, all in the name of a total separation of church and state. But if one looks closely, the restrictions are unequal and discriminatory. The school dress code forbids the Muslim headscarf and the Jewish namaka, along with large Christian crosses. But this is a totally unequal burden, because the first two items of clothing are thought religiously obligatory by some observant members of these religions, and the third is not. Christians are under no religious obligation to wear any cross, much less a large one. So there's discrimination inherent in the French system. Wouldn't French secularism be acceptable if practiced in a fully even-handed way? According to US constitutional law, government may not favor religion over non-religion or non-religion over religion. For example, it was unconstitutional for the University of Virginia, a state university, to announce that it would use student fees to fund all the other student activities, political organizations, environmental organizations, cultural organizations, and so on, but not the religious groups. I must say that I prefer this balanced policy to French laïcité, I give its fair work to religious people. Separation is not total even in France, thus a fire and a burning church would still be put out by the public fire department. Churches still get the use of the public water supply and the public sewer system. Still, the amount and type of separation that the French system mandates, while understandable historically, looks unfair in the light of the principles that I've defended.